You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, listeners. Another Middle East Analysis. Delighted to be with you. James Abbott here in the chair. Now, I'm going to start by saying silence in court. Now, why am I doing that? Well, we're going to get a little bit legal, not exclusively today on Middle East Analysis. Now, putting on his, and I hope I say this right, peruke and jabbo today is the venerable Dr. Harry Hagopian, who, as I'm sure you all know by now, is an international lawyer, as well as all the other things. Harry, did I pronounce that right? And tell our listeners, if they don't know, what a peruke and jabbo actually are. <laughs> well, I, I, I can't... You weren't expecting that, were you? No, I wasn't expecting that. It's nice uh, talking to you again uh, on Middle East Analysis, James, and it's a pleasure to do the January, the first uh, episode for 2022 uh, together. Uh, all I would say is for our listeners to imagine that they're watching Rumpole of the Old Bailey, and they would get the image of, of the barrister there, and they could sort of transpose that on me as you and I today try to as you said, slightly shift gears, not entirely, but slightly, in trying to look at the uh, Middle East North Africa issues in a legal perspective and how the legal and the political coexist. Do they or don't they? In other words, what I'm just going to try and do in as short a space as possible, to try and highlight whether in the Middle East North Africa region there is any real separation of powers. Now, most people know that there are three traditional. The first thing I studied at law school when I was doing what was known as constit, which is constitutional law, is the three powers, you have the executive, the government, the minister, whatever. Then you have the parliamentary, which is parliament, deputies. And then you have the judiciary, the judges, and the legal stuff. Some people add a fourth power, which is the press. But that's a different state. It's not really the constitutional definition of, uh, of powers. And the whole idea is that those three are supposed to be separate from each other, not impacting or controlling each other so that the democracy of that particular country flourishes. Now, my question is, and it's not really a question, but it's a, an interpretation, that the separation of powers between the three organs of state does not really succeed in the Middle East, North Africa. And what I would like to do is with you is to explore very briefly, hint at rather than explain, some countries where I can see this situation whereby the political is impinging 
upon the legal and where that separation is not happening at all. Well, we used to always say that it's, you know, you'll never evade the long arm of the law. But perhaps that's not necessarily a maxim that we could apply to the Middle East, North Africa. And I also think, you know, there are military leaders, of course, as well. And they're not quite so comfortable bedfellows with with state law, are they? So, Harry, are we going to talk about international law or the various sort of state laws for, for the nations that we're going to discuss? No, no, we're not going to really talk international law. We are going to basically talk at its most basic level. What I would say is, to put it slightly differently and not to talk about highfalutin concepts and separation of powers, but to basically ask, do politicians control and influence judges and the judicial system and the court system, or are these two separate and independent? In other words, can in one any one uh, Middle Eastern North African country can a judge exercise his or her own professional work, the rule of law, without interference from politicians? And does that interference influence the outcome? of those cases or the the osmosis between the 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 three powers the executive the government the parliament and judges or courts this is basically all i want to do today and i want to use a few examples of a few countries that we will visit you and i um, israel sudan tunisia lebanon uh, syria in germany and i'll explain what i mean by that uh, and Egypt, for instance, to try and highlight this, what I call this very uncomfortable reality. And it's not a new reality. I'm not uh, reinventing the wheel. I'm not rediscovering textbooks. All I'm saying is, you know what? We talk in our MEA episodes about politics. Let us now, after all, I was a law graduate and I was a lawyer before I became involved in politics, let let us talk a little bit about this interaction between uh, law and uh, uh, politics. That's, that's what I'm going to try and do in as best I can. Well, this most definitely is going to be on your legal shoulders then, Harry. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a lawyer. I'm married to a barrister. Um, well, a trained barrister. Um, so my role, I guess, is going to be something of a, a humble guide, if that's OK, over the next half an hour or so. Um, I'm interested in looking at those uh, particular powers and the tension therein. Now, you mentioned we're going to look at some country realities by way of punctuating, illustrating the points that you're going to make. Um, you know, I think recently that judicial appointments or, or judges appointed to inquiries or overseeing settlements and various other things can cause quite riotous outcomes in the streets, can't they? So this, there's all manner of facets to, to looking at this. So where do you want to start? Well, I mean, to start with an easy one, and before I do that, let me also preface it because you mentioned, you mentioned uh, this. And let me say that what we are going to try and do in those few minutes available to us in this episode this month, uh, what we're going to do is not exclusive to the MENA region. It happens across the world. It happens across all continents. In Africa, it is as blatant, if not more blatant, 
than in the West Asia, uh, in other Latin America, in other parts of the world, and dare I say, even in the West, in Europe, in the United States. This is happening. It is rearing its ugly head or its uncomfortable uh, head as well. But my remit, your remit, in as far as, uh, insofar as the MEA is concerned, is the MENA and Gulf regions. So let's let's try and do that. For instance, I'll give you one example, just as a as an antipasti, as a as a <laughs> as a flavor of what I'm trying to do. Let's take Israel. Oh, start with the complex. Israel, yeah, it is complex, but it is not really that complex. Why? In this instance, because. As a lot of people who've heard us talk about Israel and Israel and Palestine, when we've talked about the situation, the four elections that the then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu led in order to have a comfortable majority uh, in Parliament in the Israeli Knesset, what happened eventually, as most of our listeners know, is that he lost his office of prime minister, and he was replaced by somebody called Naftali Bennett. Now, one of the reasons we said then, and I've said it on many occasions in different uh, spaces, that one of the reasons why Netanyahu wanted so desperately to remain uh, prime minister is because at the same time as he was continuing his political career, he had been indicted in Israel, in what are known as cases 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000. These are how they are uh, described for charges which included uh, breach of trust, accepting bribes, and fraud. Now, if he had remained in office as prime minister, he would have had immunity. Out of office, he does not have that same immunity. So we can already see how the political and the legal are uh, interacting. And what has happened is that there was a lot of toing and froing with the Attorney General Mandelbit about do we indict him, don't we indict him, what do we do, what uh, don't we do, how does it impact uh, the political system and the parliamentary system in Israel. And interestingly enough, since he lost his office as prime minister and was replaced by what I call this rotating double prime ministers of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, is that he actually has found himself facing the uh, high court in Israel. And I think he is in a difficult situation, so difficult actually, that he is now considering a plea bargain. What does that plea bargain entail? That instead of going to prison, he would agree to, he would accept a charge of moral turpitude. And as a consequence of that, he would uh, serve, he would do community service uh, in Israel, and he would not be allowed to do politics or hold political office for seven years. Now, he's already not happy with that, and he's smarting from that, and he's pretending that he doesn't want to accept this uh, uh, plea bargain. Why? Because if he does accept it, in order to stay out of jail from those three cases, 1,000, 2,000, and 4,000, then that means that he will no longer be able to be the leader of one of the right-wing parties in Israel, the Likud 
party, which in turn means that it's very possible that the coalition government led at the moment by Naftali Bennett might also collapse. Why? Because there there are very uneasy partners in that coalition. And if Netanyahu is no longer in the political scene, it means that some movement of the deck chairs might happen within Israeli political uh, system, whereby this government might not be able to serve its full uh, term. Now, uh, Netanyahu is 71 now. If he is out of politics for seven years, what, at 78 he's going to come back and try to be prime minister again? Well, he might try it. His ego is quite big. But I'm not too sure about that. So in a sense, I thought that this is good, what is happening. And what it shows is that this whole business of plea bargain is because of the pressures on the attorney general, who incidentally finishes his term uh, this week and a new one will be uh, chosen and elected. So this whole plea bargain uh, soap will have to pause for a while until the new attorney general uh, comes in. But all this shows the interaction between politics and uh, the law, between the courts and ministers. But it also, uh, I think, shows that when it comes to the Israeli judicial system, I've always said this, it's very good and quite independent from the executive when it comes to Israeli citizens, Israeli Jewish citizens. That independence between politics and law, between courts and ministers, is frayed far more seriously when the defendants are not Israeli Jews, but Arab Palestinians or Palestinian uh, Israelis. So this also is another interesting uh, ingredient to add to this, where the, the, the system might creak a bit depending on the identity of the defendant facing the judges in a court in Israel. That is basically, I mean, I thought this would be just a starter and I've already spoken for 10 minutes, but that basically, James, is one example of the interaction between uh, the law, the legal and the political, the courts and the ministers. Well, you say a starter, but actually it was it was a really good starter because I think it highlighted perfectly well that tension and interestingly harry and i will keep this brief but the plea bargain leads to a political punishment doesn't it in that sense i'm quite curious if if let's say the plea bargain was not on the table what the actual sort of criminal punishment would be for cases 1000 2000 and 4000 well if there is no plea bargain he would uh, and assuming that he would be found guilty which i think most Israelis, including probably himself in the very heart of hearts, thinks will happen, is that he will go and serve a prison sentence. Would that be a long sentence? Well, it could be about 10 years. So basically what he is trying to do with a plea bargain is to stay out of jail. It's like a monopoly stay out of jail card. And in return, he is willing to do community service and promise not to be involved with politics. Will it work? Will it happen? Will it fly? I don't know, because it hasn't yet happened. And there are changes, as I said, with uh, Attorney General Mandelbit retiring. So it'll be interesting to see how this uh, goes uh, forward and what will be the next episode in this Israeli political soap. 
Now, one of the countries on your list here, Harry, is Lebanon. And I'm already thinking, apart from obviously, you know, the inquiry into the, the awful blast in Beirut, which caused a bit of an uproar as well. What exactly can we talk about here? Because I'm struggling to even see the pillars of power in Lebanon. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, who sees the pillars of power at the moment in Lebanon? Lebanon is in a very sad and sorry state at the moment. Uh, politically, it's going through huge upheavals, and I don't want to drift uh, there. But you actually hit the nail on the head, James, because you said that apart from the investigation on the port explosion, but that to me is again... Uh, the example I wanted to use uh, with Lebanon to show about how the political and the executive and the parliamentary, if you want, try to impinge upon the work of uh, the judiciary or the judges. Why? Because that horrific port explosion that took place and that destroyed so much of the capital uh, Lebanon of Lebanon, Beirut, uh, as a consequence of that, a judge was finally, there was one who uh, resigned and then another one came in his place. But eventually we now have a judge, Tariq Bitar, who basically is supposed to investigate what happened, who was responsible, what did this ammonium nitrate have to do in the port there, how long was it there in the silos, What? why was it there and who had given permission. And there has been so much of a political tug of war in Lebanon between parties supporting uh, Tariq Bitar's work and those working against him and saying that he is not the right person uh, to do this investigation, to proceed with this investigation, that what we see now happening is this is a standoff between the two sides in Lebanon, the two halves of Lebanon, as, as it were, and Therefore, the question is, do politicians really, in any real separation of powers, do politicians really, whether they are the uh, the head of the parliament, the prime minister, one of the powerful uh, parties uh, in Lebanon, no matter which, do they really have the power to decide whether they like a judge uh, investigating the port explosion or not. And if they say, for instance, Hezbollah, one of the strong parties in Lebanon, says that they have nothing to worry about, that they are they had nothing to do with the port explosion, but they're against the uh, judge Tariq Bitar investigating this case. And my question there, the question of any reasonable uh, person on the uh, Clapham omnibus would be, if you don't have anything to hide, why are you worried who investigates the port explosion? So in a sense, we see how the political is trying to come down hard on the, on the, on the uh, judicial and how uh, the Lebanese cabinet had not met for weeks and weeks on end because of this standoff between the two parts. And you would say, no. Lebanon, which supposedly was based on the French system, should have been able to tell this guy, you have the free reign to go wherever you want. Uh, 
interrogate or question anybody you want, no matter an ex-minister, a present minister, a member of parliament, uh, whoever, in order to find the truth and come to the truth of the matter. This is not happening. And for me, this is also an unfortunate example of the intermingling, the confusion uh, between those uh, three powers in the country. Now, actually, it's funny when you were saying that, and I believe this is something you may well tackle in an afterthought. Obviously, you know, without for one second wishing to talk down the devastation and the awful, the loss of life as well as uh, off the back of that terrible blast in Beirut. But you do make me think about politicians and whether they're above the law and whether they're following the rules. It does smack a bit of party gate, doesn't it? That sort of argument. It does smack of uh, party gate and. Uh... It is uh, it is as uh, serious, if not more serious, than Partygate. Well, we'll perhaps come on to that, Harry. Now, a, another couple of realities. I, I'm like, I'm enjoying this, by the way. I think these are good examples that, that very well punctuate and explain what you're saying here. You've got a couple of um, North African realities in terms of Tunisia and Egypt. Where do you yeah. want to start? Well, let's let's take Tunisia, shall we, James? Yeah, why not? If you remember, if you go back, if our listeners go back two, three episodes, I believe, you and I were talking about Tunisia and yeah. the way that uh, the president of uh, Tunisia, Qais Saied, how he had then uh, frozen parliament and taken over uh, sole power of uh, controlling the country. And I think you were talking to me about it and you were a little bit perplexed or surprised then. Uh, when I said that, well, I understand a little bit. Let's not be too hasty to to judge him. Let's not prejudge the president. Let's see where he's going. Because at the end of the day, there was a lot of corruption in the country. Uh, There were a lot of ills facing that country. And I said, well, maybe we should give him time to prove his intentions. And I think you were a little bit surprised because you would have thought that I would go uh, on the other side of the argument, that no, this is, a rev- this is not allowed, you can't have a coup d'etat of this uh, nature in the only uh, country across the Middle East, North Africa, whose uh, Arab Spring, between inverted commas, uh, had somewhat seemingly succeeded. Guilty but, is charged, Harry. I, I made yeah. a presumption, that is for sure. No, but it was a very appropriate uh, surprise uh, that you exhibited then because I have begun to change my mind. And I've changed my mind quite frequently in the last few months about where Qais Sayyid, the president, is going with this, uh, with his uh, attitude, with his posturing. Uh, and I use posturing advisedly because you don't know this, but when he speaks in Arabic, it's like a professor uh, uh, lecturing the guests sitting with him in the room rather than discussing it with them. And one thing that really raised my concerns is recently he's tried to not only go against uh, after the deputies of parliament because he thinks that a lot of these people are not working for the interest of uh, Tunisia, that they have robbed, purloined 
the fortunes of the country, the investments are not working, uh, corruption is endemic. We know that a lot of that might well uh, be true, but he also has political reasons and he's supported by uh, proxy governments in the region who want him to get rid of, say, uh, members of Al-Nahda, which is an Islamist Tunisian uh, party, etc., etc. We know all that. But what really raised my concern a bit is that he's recently been targeting the judiciary and he said something in Arabic and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember exactly what he said, James. He said in Arabic something uh, like judges are not the nation. Yes, judges are not the nation but judges are a barometer of the nation. And what he has done is he has helped, he has allowed the public prosecutor, Le Parquet in Tunisian uh, language, and uh, others to go against those judges who are showing independence and who are pushing back against some of what really can only be uh, described as autocratic, uh, despotic measures that he's taking to center all power in his own hands. For instance, just to give you and, and the listeners an example, the High Judicial Council in Tunisia is the body which is empowered in the 2014 constitution to ensure the proper functioning of the judicial system and the respect for its independence. Well, there have been ongoing attacks against the High Judicial uh, uh, Council and the judiciary. Uh, this is another affront, as far as I'm concerned, uh, to the separation of powers and the rule of law. Interestingly enough, it's not only me who's saying this, it's also the International Commission of Jurists, the ICJ, which has said that it is very concerned about the way that the president is going by trying to denigrate the importance and the integrity of the judges and the High Judicial Council in order to be able to exercise his autocratic uh, rule in the country. And what makes it even more interesting for me is that he himself was a law professor before he became uh, a, uh, a president. And so when he goes around coming up with all those theories about where power should be centered and what should the constitution say, that worries me a lot. And of course, what has happened as a consequence of all these measures, whether against the uh, judiciary, whether uh, other measures that he's undertaken, is that the country, Tunisia, has also been divided with those with him and, and those against him. So in a sense, it worries me, and for me, Tunisia has also become another example of what was a hope for democracy going back into what could be called autocracy, I suppose, uh, or dictatorship, or whatever you want to call the, the The term is not important. It's the impact on the ground that's important. And there was a discussion on uh, Twitter recently about what do you call uh, Tunisia and uh, and uh, some of the MENA uh, countries in view of all these things happening there and all the confusion and all the um, 
transgressions against human rights and against the rule of law. And one of my favorite uh, thinkers is Hussein Ibish, who was talking about his concern uh, on what is happening in Tunisia uh, these days. And another person on Twitter said, "And well, in the Gulf, we have monocracy, not monocracy, a one-man rule, monocracy, which I suppose was his own invention of a term, which means democracy a la monarchy in, the, uh, in, uh, in some of these countries. And he said there are seven monarchies in the Arab world and they have a system of monocracy. Come on, I mean, that is risible. So in a sense, that's what worries me about Tunisia uh, as well, uh, James. Now, moving to Egypt, are we going to be looking yet more at political self-interest rather than national interest? Yes, we are. Because one of the things that people don't hear very clearly, because we are so busy in the West with our own problems, not only in the UK, but show me one Western country that is not mired down, bogged down with its own problems that are keeping our ministers, our governments, our parliament so busy. Uh, But in Egypt, what has happened is that uh, the president of Egypt, uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, has basically been maintaining, continuing a severe crackdown on any political dissent in the country. And anybody who disagrees with him speaks out publicly against him, uh, promotes ideas that he finds unacceptable uh, in Egypt, that person, no questions asked, goes back immediately into jail. And this is unacceptable, but it is frightening because Egypt has been for so long the light, the beacon for the Arab world, and it has now basically darkened itself into being a country of crackdowns and a country of uh, uh, human rights uh, transgressions. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is not only because of the fact that the courts basically parrot-like accept the edict that comes from the presidential palace, and they basically do what the president wants to do. So if the president doesn't like somebody, they put that person in jail. And one example that really sort of drew public attention, and I want to share it with you and the viewers, you probably have heard about it, James, is the case of Rami Shah. Now, Rami Shah is the son of Nabil Shah. Who is Nabil Shah? Nabil Shah is one of the most prominent Palestinian politicians who was, he's an internationalist, Nabi Shah, he's been in the negotiations, uh, and he's been in the PLO. He's he's a very prominent Palestinian uh, politician who's recently retired, and his son was basically held in detention for 900 days, two and a half years, in a, a prison in, uh, well, more than one prison in Egypt. And the reason for that was because this man was campaigning against uh, Israeli occupation of Palestinian lands, and he was the person who was leading the BDS, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Campaign against Israeli uh, measures and occupations in uh, in the Palestinian territories and within Israel. And because of his outspokenness, 
when it came to political issues in Egypt, he was put in jail. Now, fortunately, Rami Shat was released from jail. But he was released from jail not necessarily because of a moment of broad-minded laxity by the executive, by the president in Egypt, but because his wife, Céline Lebrun, is French. And she was campaigning for his release. And as a French national, she had the voice of Europe with her. She also managed to convince uh, President Emmanuel Macron of France to sort of put some pressure on the Egyptian authorities uh, to release her. And finally, Rami, after two and a half years, was released. But the, the price he had to pay is that he had to renounce his Egyptian citizenship, his Egyptian passport, in return for his release. And then he was flown to Jordan immediately, and from there he went back to France, where he joined his wife and some of his other friends. So once again, Rami Shah is only one example, upon so many in Egyptian jails, that basically shows about the cretinous lack of independence of the judiciary in Egypt and how they basically are hempecked by the executive. And this is, again, another example of courts versus ministers or the executive versus the judiciary. Now, I'm going to try and add another dimension to this. And if it's waffle or nonsense, I know that you will point it out <laughs> quite quite strongly. But I wonder if this is what happens when you put a, a general in as, as president or where the military meets politics. You know, the, I don't I don't imagine that military people just by their own formation find you know, domestic laws easy to cope with. I think they like to strong arm and, and establish their own rule of law, don't they? James, spot on. This is not waffle, and I'm not going to decry what you're saying because you're absolutely right. Uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and before him Mubarak were uh, military people. Sadat, Anwar Sadat, was also a military person. Yeah, the unfortunate thing about the uh, Arab world, the MENA, is that the military think that if they're not in charge, that the country would go astray because the people are unable to govern themselves, to rule themselves. They don't have the talent, they don't have the abilities, which is sheer nonsense because they very much have the ability. And those who don't is because they have not been educated how to think for themselves and how to be able uh, to do it. And interestingly enough, what happens is not only because of this belief in their omnipotence uh, versus the inability of the people, the grassroots, uh, to the subjects, not even citizens, to rule themselves. But what also is true is that in countries where we see the military taking over, it's also because the military has so much economic stakes from its own investments in the country that it doesn't want any government that is inimical with the interests of the military to take over because they're worried that their whole industry, their whole profits would dwindle away if somebody else comes and rules 
the country. And this is why I put, uh, and maybe we can talk about that now, I also included Sudan in, uh, in our example today, is because Sudan, like Egypt, is also being run now by the military, and they are hell-bent on staying in power despite their constant statements that this is only a transition which would lead to civilian rule. Yeah, I think it's fascinating, Harry, I must admit. And maybe there is a podcast there, actually, when we're talking about those military rulers that become political overlords, if you like, in the Middle East and North Africa. It's uh, um, it's very possible. I mean, for our listeners to remember, because I think you and I have talked about uh, Sudan over the years, not very often, but we have spoken about Sudan. Yeah, we've delved south, haven't we, from North Absolutely. Africa? Absolutely. I mean, uh, Omar al-Bashir was the president uh, and, uh, until he was uh, kicked out in 2019. And since then, on and off, there have been protests in uh, the country, across the whole country, not only in Khartoum, the capital, but in also in other places like in Umdurman, in Wadi Madani, uh, where uh, the, the people have protested on and on. It's the Hirak, it's the protest movement in Sudan who have constantly said that we want civilian government, we don't want the military uh, to rule. And what has the military done? The military has countered the protests, there have been many arrests, there have been uh, deaths. Uh, the UN representative to Sudan, uh, he's a German, Volker Pertes, has spoken out against these arrests. But they have the military has pushed back because although it's it protests its innocence, it doesn't want to lose the reins of power. And then again, to bring it back to our theme today of the separation of power, etc., etc., only last week the Sudanese authorities did two things. One, they requested delaying the arrival of the UN expert on human rights in Sudan by the name of Adam Adam Adyeng, to, who, uh, who was appointed in November and was due to make, he was due to arrive on his first official visit uh, in November. He was told to postpone that visit. And more importantly, that why? Because they didn't, the, the government, the military didn't want to touch upon human rights issues at the moment. They thought it was too, too critical. But more serious also for me is the statement from 55 Sudanese judges to the judiciary chief saying that the military leaders had, and I think I'm quite close to what they said in my mind, they'd violated international agreements and covenants since the October 25th coup and that they'd carried out the most heinous violations against defenseless uh, protesters. Now, this is, again, the judges in Sudan trying to take a position against the uh, military and the way the military is ruling uh, the countries. And interestingly enough, separately from those 55 judges, uh, more than 100 prosecutors announced that they would stop work to call for an inquiry, to call for the security forces to cease violations and lift the state of uh, emergency. They claim, those uh, prosecutors, claimed that they'd been unable to carry out their uh, their legal duties uh, 
to accompany police to protest and determine whether the use of force was acceptable. So it is unusual for Sudan's judges and prosecutors, in my opinion, to make such public statements about the conduct of the security forces, which, let us admit it, James, are answerable to the military and therefore are answerable uh, to the military in the council. So in a sense... This also shows the tensions between the judiciary and the executive, those tensions between those who want to stay in power and those who are trying to uh, unleash the potential that is existent in all these countries, but which has been clamped down. Because when people say there isn't really an alternative, Uh, to what we have in the MENA region these days, I ask them, you say there is no alternative. Have you tried to find an alternative and to encourage it? I'm not so sure. Yeah, definitely. And it's another interesting example, I must say, Harry. Now, the final country on this list raised my eyebrows more than Sudan, actually. We, We know that Sudan's a little bit out of our geographical territory, but that was a very good example. You've suggested Germany. Now, we're not going to delve into EU law, are we here? (laughs) No, we're not going to do that. Where's my tin hat? Yeah. (laughs) For Germany, we're going to... I wanted to draw people's attentions again to show that sometimes how you can see the differences in how we perceive uh, uh, the courts and how the relationship between the state and and its courts... I'm going to uh, give you the example of a Syrian, Anwar Raslan. Anwar Raslan was a former Syrian colonel who had led a unit of Syria's General Intelligence Directorate in 2011 and 2012, or so the claims went and the evidence that was produced. Uh, He had tortured some 4,000 detainees in an underground facility in Damascus, which was known as Al-Khatib, which is known as Al-Khatib, and which has been described by some of the prisoners there as being hell on earth. There was torture of those detainees. There was also murder. There was uh, rape. This facility, Al-Khatib, James, for those people who know, and I know that some of the people who listen to us are very clued into Syria, uh, this facility, this jail, is part of Branch 251, which is part of the GSD, the General Security Directorate, and is one of, uh, which is one of Syria's four main intelligence agencies. Now, this Anwar Raslan, who detained, tortured, uh, mur- helped murder, uh, allowed the rape of, etc., during those two years, eventually made his way out of Syria and sought asylum in Germany. Hence, the connection with Germany. And somebody spotted him, one, an ex-convict who also had fled Syria and sought asylum and settled uh, temporarily or more in Germany. And he was identified as this man who was the Syrian colonel, etc., etc., that I just talked about. And in January 2022, which is this month, a few days ago, Raslan was convicted 
of crimes against humanity in a German high regional court. Now, why did that happen? That happened because Germany used something called universal uh, jurisdiction, that it has the right to, uh, to uh, go after people who have been accused of crimes anywhere in the world. Now, this is a contentious a principle in international law. It's applied by some pe- uh, countries. Germany is one example. Sweden is another. Belgium is a third. But it's not. Uh, it's not across the world because there are some countries which do not like uh, to uh, to exercise this jurisdiction in their own country. They would say it's got nothing to do uh, with us. But I was so happy that uh, Germany did this and it was it happened in a court this uh, this court in Koblenz in the country and he got his sentence in jail if i'm not mistaken it's a life sentence because uh, if memory serves me right because the the things that were uh, talked about in court the evidence that was produced about what had happened there was actually mind boggling interestingly enough this is in germany in Koblenz. This could never have happened in Syria. There again, it shows the huge disparity between our EU Western uh, court system and that despite all the pressures, we do have a separation of powers versus what could happen uh, in, uh, in Syria or in many other uh, MENA countries. But the other thing, the lesson to be drawn, is that Anwar Raslan is only one among so many people who have tortured, detained, killed, raped with total impunity in Syria, who are still roaming around. So he's become almost uh, tokenistic, totemic, in terms of uh, one rather important person who was arrested and then tried and then sentenced. But there are so many others, which is the sadness of the whole thing. But yet again, it shows about how different countries, different systems apply this concept of separation of powers differently. And it was wonderful for me, as somebody, you know this, who's Germanophile, to follow this uh, this. Uh, the court proceedings, and to see how, because I could understand what was happening, uh, and see how this happened. And the man kept on denying everything, but the evidence was incontrovertible. Well, I have to say, I mean, that's bravery of a, another nation to met out justice in that way. And more often than not, you expect it not to happen, don't you? And people are in other countries. Um, Harry, that is a, I, I totally understand the justification for adding Germany to the list now. So well done. Now, look, we're, we're rattling through and I'm going to use my executive authority now. I'm excluding you from any sidebars with the judge. I'm going to cut the afterthoughts. Bit different from normal, but I think this has been such an interesting and multifaceted discussion that Yep, cutting the afterthoughts. Um, We've stuck to topic pretty much up until now. 
I'll hold you in contempt otherwise. <laughs> Let's move on. Well, Harry, look, thank you very much. We definitely, considering the ground covered, I think actually it was quite quite snappy in parts as well, to be totally fair. It was different and interesting. And I particularly enjoyed looking at those those tensions between the political system and the judiciary, the legal system, and, you know, the separation and such, or whether that even exists. One mantra that I would leave with our listeners is when there is no separation of powers, there is inevitably corruption. Yeah, undeniably, I think. So on that note, Harry, I extend my many thanks to you for this excellent podcast. Very interesting. And um, we will join you again in February if you can spare us the time. We will do this again in gen- in February, and yet again we will promise to be short, and we will not be able to abide by that limitation. <laughs> I'll, I'll buy bigger editorial shears, Harry, between now and then. Take care, James. Thank you very much. You too. Take care, Harry. <laughs>